my daughters, they know what isopods are. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a friend who does vinyl on shirts. Mm-hmm. Um, his company is Art of Darts. He sent me uh, these black shirts with these glittery um, isopods on it that he put on there in vinyl. Mm-hmm. And they're like, Mama, I wear isopods today. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> and uh, my son, um, he didn't get into daycare full time until actually this month. Wow. And so um, he was coming to work with me like two to four days a week, depending mm-hmm. on what daycare looks like. Mm-hmm. And if I was ever doing anything in culture, he'd be like, mama, bug, mama, bug. And I have like pictures of him sitting on the table, like looking in like, and I'd have to give him a cup of bugs. And if he dropped his bug, he'd be like, bug. <laughs> Hey friends, and welcome to the Modern Medusa podcast. friends, welcome back to the Modern Medusa podcast. This is your host, Dominique DeFalco of DeFalco Reptiles. Thank you so much for joining me for another week. I'm super excited to talk to today's guest. Laura Mae Ripple is an incredible isopod breeder, also a gecko breeder, and she has had a really unique opportunity to land her products in PetSmart and other big box stores. So this is a really cool opportunity to see how the reptile community is, you know, getting more towards the public eye. So I'm super excited to talk to Laura today to learn more about how she got into the hobby and what she's doing with it. So good morning, Laura. Good morning. Thanks for having me. All right. I'm like, I don't know if it's still morning. Tech- oh, I guess it's 1 p.m. my time. I kind of had a late uh, night, so it feels like morning. Well, it's 11.59 a.m. here. So All right, perfect. Morning. So it counts. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had one of those, like, um, whenever I have recordings in like the on the weekends I have this like fear that I'm going to sleep through them which it's literally 1 p.m my time like I'm not going to sleep through this but I woke up this morning at 6 a.m and I was like oh like oh no we've got like 12 hours or six hours or whatever I was like it's fine oh my gosh but thank you so much um thanks for taking your one child free day of the week to hang out with me over zoom I really appreciate it so uh for people who don't know you can you give a little intro who is Laura what do you do just so people can get acquainted uh, I own and operate Snugbug. Uh, we are mostly known for the ice pods we keep and breed. We have a little, little over a hundred species, close to two hundred fifty varieties, and five hundred different cultures in twenty-five liter tubs in our facility. We've also been expanding into geckos, and we breed most New Caledonian species. The rare ones we haven't really quite gotten into yet because I want to kind of iron out the specifics with the more common ones. We have crested geckos, gargoyle geckos, Saracenorum. I have one producing lychee pair, but we've been growing out a couple more to hopefully produce in the next few years. Three different species of load. And I'm sure there's one in there I'm forgetting, but <laughs> just the basics right now, really. We've yeah, got- running the gamut. <laughs> yeah, we've got about 400 animals and a hundred or so of them will be breeding this next year. So it's really been growing. Very exciting. Yeah. Geez. You just got, you know, it's like a couple things going on. Right. (laughs) And then, you know, three kids, one on the way and a husband to worry about. Yeah. All the good things. My husband this morning asked me three times where his coat was. 
And every mm. single time I told him if I found it, I put it in the closet. And he finally came in. He said, I took the closet one more time. And it was there. <laughs> it's incredible how things just appear, right? <laughs> yeah. He said, Laura, the best news about this is I'll probably live about 40 more years and I'll ask you the same question every week. <laughs> <laughs> at least he's self-aware. Yeah. You know, like you can yeah. at least be like, you know what? That's fine. He knows. <laughs> yeah. That's a, a pretty expansive collection to have, um, specifically with how many isopod species you said you work with, 100? Mm-hmm. That's, I I didn't, obviously, like, I kind of understood that 100 isopod species are in the hobby, but that's incredible to think that you're working with 100 of them. So how yeah, did you- I was uh, going to get a bunch more in, but I wasn't able to complete the export-import order. Um, mm-hmm. There's only one uh, licensed importer that I've been able to find that is willing to import isopods. Hmm. Um, as, uh, since it's not like one specific animal, like reptiles, it's a lot more difficult in the process. And I wasn't able to iron it out in time to do the import this, this past fall. So this next spring, I'm hoping to get 20 or 30 more species in from Europe. Wow. So are those species that are native to Europe or are those species that are in the hobby in Europe? They're, they're native. Like I, I have a couple of contacts in Europe that um, actively go throughout Europe and then some of them also go to Asia and they collect and they note the collection sites and they either identify or give me their best guess at identifying <laughs> and um, then they send me over the specifics and I decide if I want to import them or not. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah there's a couple of species that are in the hobby that I imported yeah, and originated I was, with me. I was listening to um, a podcast you did Oh, shucks. I exited out of the, the gentleman's stream. Um, Aquarium X? Yeah, Max. Um, So I was listening to some of that as I was cleaning up cat vomit this morning, um, getting ready for our interview, which is such mm-hmm. a glamorous life we live. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was, you were mentioning an, a species that you imported from Italy. And it literally did not cross my mind that there's probably a huge import market for isopods. So... Mm-hmm. How did you, uh, okay, this is going to be like kind of story time. I want you to kind of tell me, how did you first get into just isopods in general um, and get interested in them and then get where you are with the importation, with being such a large name in isopods in the U.S. and being able to establish these in in the hobby here? Well, I first, like, I um, had just moved into this big house by myself and so I was like frantically collecting reptiles because I didn't really see my life going anywhere. <laughs> so I had like all these Same. reptiles <laughs> and then I ended up um getting this chameleon from somebody that was really poorly taken care of mm-hmm. and no I shock. was That's always secondhand chameleons are never very well taken care of it's really sad yeah and people don't they I don't know if this one had a high metabolism because it's only the chameleon I've ever had mm-hmm. but she wasn't fed enough and she wasn't really fed dusted calcium which is a common problem with reptiles yep and so she had a, a crooked crown and a kinky tail. Mm-hmm. And I was veiled, told that I like, assume. what's that? She was a veiled, I assume. Yeah, she was a veiled. Yeah. And um, I was told that like to help her recover and help her body recover, um, I should give her roaches because those are so high in protein. Mm-hmm. And so Chameleon was eating so much. I was feeding her $40 of roaches a week, which, wow. which was a lot since I was just a CNA at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not like, it's, like to some people, they're probably going to be like, well, I have an Aki, they eat so much. But like, for me, it's like a CNA, like I had this chameleon, I was spending like half of my grocery budget. 
Yeah. <laughs> and the pet store felt so bad. They're like, you know, you can you can breed these. Like, you don't have to keep buying them for me. You can breed these. And so, like, I looked it up and I started breeding roaches. And I was like, okay. So it's kind of starting to talk to more to bug to, to more bug people. And then another gal, she uh she, she owns Darling Geckos, Angela Mack. Was like, well, you have like 48 reptiles. Have you heard of um, isopods? And I said, what the hell are isopods? Like, I've never even heard of that before. She's like, well, roly polies. Cool. Yeah, roly polies. She's like, they're really cool. Like, you can put them in the dirt and they clean your tanks. And since you've got so many animals on dirt, I think they'd be really helpful for you. And so she sent me some and I was kind of, you know, messing with them. And then I did the whole shebang where I went and I dug up half my yard looking for these things. Mm-hmm. and then I joined the group and I was getting really active in them <clears throat> and then fast forward a couple years and um, I've got a couple cultures of them I think I had like 10 or 20 at the time mm-hmm. and, I and are these, was, sorry are these cultures the, all different species like so 10 cultures 10 different species or just um different varieties so like the the species Porcelio scaper has mm-hmm. about 25 30 different mutations in the hobby mm-hmm. and then there will be other ones that people are more familiar with like Nisodum only has four different variations okay and then some that are like really new they don't even have any isolated variations okay cool okay so, so keep going oh, okay. sorry I just, uh, I'm just gonna interrupt <laughs> oh no it's fine um and so then I had I think I had 40 60 reptiles and they're all just pets and we had a friend come over who was an engineer and he called me a fire hazard and he brought over three industrial strength fire extinguishers. And so we had it come to Jesus meeting with Laura and Laura, we can't have this many animals, Daisy chained on heat. I'm really sorry, but I don't want you to kill our twins. Uh, we're going to have to work this out. So I was like, okay. Yep. So I got rid of um, most of my insectivores because all of them are on heat. Mm-hmm. I only kept uh, I think my leopards and I don't even know if I kept any any other ones the ones I really miss are the tokays I might get those again someday mm-hmm. and then um, since I was pregnant and I always get so sick when I'm pregnant um, I got rid of the superworms I was reading because I was reading a couple thousand superworms a month but since I got rid of all my insectivores it didn't matter were you breeding those just to feed your own animals or were you selling them I was selling them locally, but not online. And so this is before Facebook really cracked down on the live animal sales. Mm-hmm. And so I just post on the local buy sell pages that I have this many for this much and people would email me. There's only like 10 people locally I sent to, mm-hmm. but it was enough that I wasn't swarming in beetle larva. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, then, so I really, I got rid of almost all my reptiles, except for like a couple of pets. And I had all these isopods. And so I just played with my babies all day and took pictures of isopods and posted them to the group. Mm-hmm. And then I, and I didn't do, I was, I was, I was sleeping four hours a day. So it was like first four or five months. I was just taking pictures of my babies and my isopods and posting them on social media. Mm-hmm. And people kept contacting me about them. And then I kept growing up the cultures because it was an animal I, I could keep without burning down the house. Right. <laughs> and you, in, I wasn't like as concerned about being overwhelmed with all like a whole bunch of baby geckos. Yeah. Because um, it's, it's not as stressful to have a hundred bugs as it is to have a hundred baby lizards. Mm-hmm. Well, the hundred so bugs, lower maintenance. the hundred bugs, you kind of are like, Oh shit, I have a hundred bugs. Let's throw some carrots in there. 
you know? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I have to check on them every one to four weeks. Yeah. You know, like every time, like I would be so tired and exhausted. <clears throat> I'd only check on the cultures once a month and they'd be fine. Mm-hmm. They're hardy little things. They thrive yeah. on neglect. As opposed, yeah, they really do. As opposed to like crested geckos, we have to check on them like a minimum every three days. Mm-hmm. Even then, like it's pushing it, and people are like, "You should really water them daily." <laughs> <laughs> so, and then it, my posts on social media, and I was so active on social media because I didn't have anything else to do. Um, people were like, "Ask me," and I was learning, and I was answering questions, and at these big cultures. And then I had um, smaller pet stores that are active in the groups contact me, and I started selling my isopods in bulk to those pet stores. Mm-hmm. And then it just kind of kept growing from there. So when you were very first, like getting started with all the isopods, um, obviously you pretty quickly became a source of knowledge for other people, but where did you get most of your information? Was it trial and error as far as husbandry or did you have mentors? A lot of it was trial and error. Mm-hmm. Um, I did kind of ask questions here or there in the group. Mm-hmm. I remember like, like you always have, like when you're a new keeper, you ask something dumb. The the dumb question I remember asking when I first joined was, can I feed grass clippings to my iPod? <laughs> <laughs> and looking back on it now, it's like, why did I think that was a good idea? But it's like, well, it's a plant. <laughs> and the answer is no, you can't. They get too moldy and gross. And mm. I found that out the hard way because I tried it anyway in one culture. <laughs> and you know, it's like, I had a mold outbreak in one of my cultures and I opened it up and I was like, just throw a few more springtails in there and but it is oh, it's gross. <laughs> yeah, they, they don't care about it. Mm-hmm. I got so but excited and I had my first mushroom in one of my bins and I was like, it's so cute. Where did you was come one from? of the yellow ones? Oh gosh, I'll have to take a picture. It was like very stereotypical mushroom shape um where it had like a hood and then just a really thin little um stem oh I get those too I don't know what those are called but I get them too and they're so cute they're so cute and I was like oh my gosh and it was in a dead culture (laughs) I had my I don't know how I managed to do this I killed a full culture of um powder oranges I how did I do that I don't know um because I kept everything else alive but for some reason that culture crashed and I just kind of kept like the tub mm-hmm. and I was like well I'll find something else to put in here and I ended up actually just getting another species and throwing it in cleaning it up and throwing it in there um but that's where the mushroom appeared one day and I was like I was like there's nothing like where did you come from <laughs> like, there's literally They're nothing in here corpses. <laughs> yeah probably I know that sounds horrible but I I sifted through that thing and then I found one very large powder orange and then nothing else and so I just was like yeah I guess you guys are gone <laughs> sorry <laughs> yeah I don't know what happened it's funny but the isopods have been something that I really wasn't into and then suddenly people start giving me isopods and now I have like five different cultures which is super fun and they're like, a lot of fun. so easy I think it's funny that you, you mentioned that when you first got your isopods you were just digging in your backyard for them because I talk with my friend Casey Cannon and Billy Hunt um, and we were at Tinley and they were making fun of me because I was buying all these isopods and they're like, why is it isopods when they're in a deli cup, but roly polies when they're just in our backyard? And it is really funny. So like, did you end up making a culture of the isopods that were in your backyard or were they just kind of something you threw in? Do you know anything about your native species? I do. I have collected um, eight species locally. Eight so species? One of my, yep. How, 
Where, um, do, where do you live? Uh, North Dakota. And there's eight species of, of isopods, at mm-hmm. least, in North Dakota. That's mm-hmm. fascinating. The farther south you get, the more there are, because it's warmer. <laughs> I mean, we don't sense. have any dwarf species, because the dwarf species all seem to like it much warmer. Mm-hmm. But um, I found a lot of the larger species here. I found um, Procelioscaber, um, Procellionides prunosus, Procelliolavis, Pylospicus convexus, Armadillidium nasatum. Actually, my Armadillidium nasatum um, are descendants from the ones I collected in my brother-in-law's rock. What's the word? Like the little decorative landscaping people put around their house yeah it was yeah. warming with the things <laughs> um there's Traculitis raski and there's two more in there i can't think of off the top of my head but those are six of them like they're around my house all over the place uh one of my husband's favorite stories is he was coming home um from work and he found me with the garbage can thrown on its side crouched under like the dark spot where you could see it was like picking all these bugs up out of the dirt <laughs> like Ben, look at all these isopods. They're living under a trash can. And he's like, I can't believe the girl I've been dating for years is collecting trash bugs and excited to bring the trash bugs into my house. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> and had he already committed with the kids then? No, this is before we even got oh, married. Man, so good. Wow. Wow. Good, for you. good for you. You really liked him. me. <laughs> That's hilarious. So, okay. So natural progression of getting, uh, getting more and starting to become someone that people like asked questions to. I'm really, really fascinated about the import export when it comes to isopods, um, because of what I was listening to earlier. So when did you first make that jump to, I'm kind of set with the species in the u.s that i have right now and i want to see what else is out there and and like start to try to find an importer or find people who are field collecting for you so the only people i know of that import export isopods are reptiles express mm-hmm. um i know reptiles to you partners with reptiles express and um they're they've been really great uh with the canadian import exports um, so I've been uh, communicating with them. Um, I imported a bunch of isopods from Canada this mm-hmm. past summer. Um, I haven't really done any imports the last two years because mm-hmm. um, before, like, they're like, oh, it's fine. We'll send them. It's fine. But it wasn't legal. And I don't want to do any illegal activity. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, people, they contact me from other countries and they're like, well, can you send Canada and, or can you send here? And I said, yeah, but the import fee is going to be like $160. And mm-hmm. Like well, $160 for bugs? And it's like, I'm sorry, but they're live animals. Um, the USDA considers them a, they classify them as a pest, mm-hmm. a crop pest. Um, so there's like some restrictions on it. Um, I know that Northern Lights Reptile partners with Reptiles Express um, when importing and exporting. And I did um, get an import order from them about two years ago from um, Spain. And well, okay, Spain sent to Germany, who sent to Canada, who sent to America. So it's like, this oh my Spain God. So how long, shipping. how long does that take, like timeline wise? Well, it's all, each time the package is shipped, it's shipped overnight shipping. Mm-hmm. Um, so it takes, I think four to five days. Okay. Not too bad. 
between all the shipping and inspections. Yeah. And not all packages were inspected, but this one was. And the, I guess the inspectors, um, I don't know if a cup was spilled or something, but I suppose we're missing, which is like frustrating for everybody involved. <laughs> the, the poor mm-hmm. gal who like was doing the import was like, she said, I literally got a cup that said random isopods after they finished inspecting them. Oh, geez. Like, oh, man, that sucks. And I had, like, other people in the import order contacting me. I felt so bad because I didn't know what was going on or what happened. But yeah, there's only so much you can do. Yeah. I, I haven't been able to get another import order from Europe since then. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm hoping this upcoming spring we can sort it out. But the importing-exporting isopods um, is difficult um, a lot of times, too, because the people, the sellers, like, they're really great with the animals. They're great with, like, notating collection data. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're so used to what they call, they call brown boxings. They don't, like, label it and send it out mm-hmm. correctly. They just, they'll write candy on it and they'll send it to people, <laughs> which doesn't get caught most of the time, but it's not legal mm-hmm. at all. <laughs> and is that, like, even within the U.S., like shipping isopods, you need any licenses or is that um, specifically with the imports? So with, this is kind of like a weird topic because that keeps changing because okay. USDA does classify them as a crop pest, um, mm-hmm. a plant pest, specifically the armadillidiums, like the Bulgarian and the Sodom, they do really like chewing up soft plants. Mm-hmm. Um, the other ones, not so much, but the isopodologist, they have an isopodologist on staff, he died. Now they just have entomologists that are familiar with other insects and plant pests and they don't have someone who can identify them or classify them. And um, what you need is like, you need a PPQ 526 permit to send out of state lines and to um, receive them. To receive them too? Yes. Receive them from out of state. Um, So if I've... If I have ordered isopods and received them and not had my permit, that's technically illegal. It is. Only um, for shipping or bringing across state lines with like a show, like reptile show? Bringing them across state lines for mm. other yourself or other people. But they don't, I have it because I'm a large business. Yeah. Um, I had to register. Um, they have to be able to inspect my facility at any time. Um, I've been in contact with the guy. I haven't heard from him in like two years, mm-hmm. the professor. Um, it, it's one of those things where it's kind of like, it's a thing, but it's, there's no way to enforce it and there's nobody enforcing it. Mm-hmm. They don't have the staff. They're not, they can't legally inspect mail. Um, yeah. I've had boxes burst in mail facilities um, from packaging and no one has contacted me or the person I was selling to. Yeah. So legally, yes, you need a permit. Mm-hmm. Um, no one's, no one's going to do anything about it. Yeah. So have you seen, um, specifically in the last couple of years, I feel like isopods have kind of exploded in the hobby. Um, has there been any reaction um, as far as the USDA goes with like, paying attention to that or are they just kind of disconnected from the hobby aspect of it um usda not so much 
Yeah. Um, game and fish is paying a lot more attention mm-hmm. because um, people are poaching isopods out of Thailand. Oh, interesting. Um, there's also, have you heard of the Cuban spiky isopods? I've heard of them, yeah. But for Those people are, who haven't, can you tell a little bit about them? Um, the Cuban spiky isopods, they're, I think they're three or four species. Um, the most, one of, the one that breeds the best in captivity, it's like a yellow base in orange and has like these really beautiful um, spikes, just really unique spikes. I guess they're a cave species. Mm-hmm. Um, they were, the initial cultures brought into the U.S. were literally snuggled on an airplane in someone's suitcase. Mm-hmm. And they are endangered and protected. And there's a Cuban embargo. Wow. So there's like three, three things protecting those. And um, I keep getting offered them, but I won't get into it because they, um, I've been, I've talked to Game and Fish and it's not legal to keep them. Hmm. I don't think that they're actively pursuing people, right. but I see people posting on social media and that is risky. Yeah, that's interesting because I guess um, I, I really have only gotten interested in ice pods in the last year and, and then inverts in general in the last year. And I did not recognize how often illegal animals are just sold and traded and like kept when it comes to inverts because it seems like a lot of people just don't know yeah well like like emperor scorpions are bred in captivity but if you mm-hmm. get them I forget what they're it's some country that comes starts with a t if you get them imported that's illegal you can't collect them in the wild from mm-hmm. where they're from mm-hmm. um you i when i was trying to like get millipedes in they're like, the import company was like, absolutely not. We cannot import millipedes because they're too high of a plant test. Yeah. Like they won't pass inspections in any way. Um, the giant African millipedes, those are also protected on top of being a plant test. Mm-hmm. Um, have you heard of those earless water monitors? They look like little dragons. They're super cute. Yes. I saw someone post, like it was in this giant like meme group for animals and ecology someone yeah. post um a, like to post like some twitter discussing them mm-hmm. and there were people discussing discussing collection sites and where to collect them and how to collect them and how much they're sold for and i guess there's like a huge black market over there because like people have their eyes on the macro species of mammals so they don't really have their eyes on these super rare reptiles and it's so easy because they're so they're so tolerant of neglect of being shoved into like these tiny spots and then surviving Mm -hmm. so when it comes to like a situation where you're offered an animal that you know is illegal what do you do do you like inform the person like hey you shouldn't have this yeah i say no it's not it's not legal to own them like i would recommend you not advertise you have them and then in the isopod groups in general are admins like looking out for certain species and being like hey this is don't post this or no uh we've never been dinged or approached for that by any government agency okay um when i say i was talking to game and fish they approached me um but they haven't asked me to look out for this they haven't asked me for any information Mm -hmm. um 
And so, I mean, I have enough to do. I'm not going to keep track of that too. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's enough of a job to make sure people are constantly trying to sell animals and people already get upset at us for that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. We, um, with the, the women's group, I just found out there's a way to like automatically decline words that have sales verbiage in it with, uh, and I just figured out how to do that. And oh my God, it was so nice. <laughs> Cause now no one can say like rehoming or looking to rehome. Like it just automatically. We might have to it. do that too. Yeah. It sucks. Cause like it could be just someone who mentioned that they got a rehome, but Facebook is being so finicky about that stuff. Yeah. Like, well, we had our, we had our group shut down, like shut down for violations. And there wasn't even any noted violations, I guess, just like, yeah, sometimes we like get some people like we've banned a lot of people because we give them three strikes and then you're out. And if they keep continuously advertising and like mm-hmm. breaking the rules and like, I counted one day, I, I think I have like, five or six posts between the entire admin team, specifically explaining in detail what you can discuss in relation to sales because we allow dry goods sales, right? Because people are always looking for dirt and leaves and all this stuff. So we allow that but we don't allow the animal sales and people can't control them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, and we ban people too. Like people will post a photo of an animal and they'll be like, for sale, for sale. No, <laughs> like, you can't ask that. And, and then they get into like in depth in the comments mm-hmm. and then all the people in the threads get muted and they'll be like, well, so-and-so is talking about it first. And it's like, Oh my God, this is not kindergarten. I always say that the, a Facebook group is a privilege, not a right. <laughs> Yeah. Like what happened to free speech? <laughs> like, I'm sorry. You can't sell your beer to dragons. The last thing we need is more beer to dragons in the hobby. Sorry. Mm-hmm. That's my little spiel. It's like every it's- year I have like three or five people offer me a beer to dragon. It's like, no, I don't want your beer to dragon. <laughs> no, it's really difficult though with these groups because like you do want it to be a form of uh, education and community building and like it'd be great if we could sell in the groups, you know, cause then you can talk to buyers and stuff and sellers, but just until we have a better platform than Facebook, it's just not going to happen. And I think it'll be really hard to find anything that builds community as well as Facebook does. Remember when they were trying to take off MeWe for a while? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so terrible. <laughs> yeah. I like, I like made it just cause everyone kept asking me, I think I lasted like a month and I deleted the whole thing because I hated the notification sound so much. Yeah. I like, what that. happened? I, like, I couldn't take it. <laughs> it's so difficult. I hate trying to learn a new platform too. And then like mm-hmm. trying to convince people to come over and like for the female herpers group, someone messaged me like, can I make a discord? And I was like, I am not going to be part of it. But if you want to make a discord, that's fine. Like I just do not have the mental capacity to learn another platform right now. <laughs> no. I don't even have kids. I can't imagine with you. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, well, I manage um, a Facebook and Instagram and then a Reddit social media profile every day. Yeah. And like, I got to tell you, out of all of them, I just, Reddit is taxing. <laughs> yeah. It's the the anon, anonym, anonym, I can't say that word. I actually got made fun of at work for this because I cannot say anonymity. I think that yes, is. there you go. <laughs> Anonymity that comes with Reddit over those other social media platforms like adds a whole different spin to it because at least if someone's being a dick on Instagram, you can just like block them, like mm-hmm. find their profile and just block them. You can't do that on Reddit. <laughs> well, Reddit gets so weird because it tracks who likes and dislikes. 
Yeah. And people like get possessive over their upvotes and then their downvotes. And it's like, bro, like it's imaginary points. Oh, no. <laughs> like, you don't get anything for them. It's yeah. going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, I got, I made a post on Reddit a couple months ago or a year. I don't even remember. I literally, I go on Reddit to look at the Am I the Asshole subreddit because um, I think mm-hmm. it's hilarious. I think that's the funniest subreddit because it's, it's always like people doing horrible things and be like, was that bad? And everyone's like, yeah, you're the asshole. <laughs> um, but I got like, gold award on reddit or something and reddit was like now you have 50 reddit coins i was like this isn't real (laughs) like don't take yourself this seriously none of this is real yeah so do you are you able to have you been able to make smug bug your full-time job because i know you said you were a cna earlier so i um i had to quit the fifth month of my pregnancy because i was so violently ill i actually lost 15 pounds during my pregnancy with my twins Oh my god, so, uh, scary. After I gave birth, I weighed less than when I got pregnant. That is so scary. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Luckily I was chubby, so it wasn't an emergency. <laughs> I had I had weight I could lose. But if, if I had been uh like even the recommended weight for my height, I would have been in big trouble. Yeah. So when when that happened and you had to quit your full-time job is that when you kind of made the choice like I want to see if I can make smug bug a full-time thing or were you not really thinking that kind of happened because Ben was working for the railroad at the time Mm -hmm. and we kind of sat down we figured out a budget and we're like okay like it's going to be kind of tight but like daycare for newborns is between 800 and 1000 dollars per newborn locally and so I would maybe be making $200 after working full-time paying daycare. Yeah. And so we were just like, might as well stay home, like hang out with the kids, make sure they're safe, make sure they're enriched. And I was just going to be a stay-at-home mom. And mm-hmm. I was going to school for accounting at the time. I was going to get my bachelor's. And then I ended up having to drop out because I had, they were premature too. <laughs> Oh my but God. I, I had a premature newborn twins and I was like, I can't, I can't do this. And so I ended up dropping out of school and it's just becoming a business. I already had a business license because um, I was selling like, I think 50 to a hundred dollars of roaches and super rooms every month. Mm-hmm. And Ben's like, we need to be legal. You need a license. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> I just got it. So he'd leave me alone. And then it, it was actually probably like, the best decision we could have done so I've had the license for about five years now and then when the girls were two I ended up I had so much to do uh, with the business um, and I was making so much that I ended up putting them in daycare yeah wow which like I mean I told you the right it's like <laughs> it was, yeah is that, was, is that like a month move. is that a month yes oh god I, oh, it, it gets less as they get older now that they are not infants um it's 700 a month and we have a really great daycare and she, um, she, we have a, it's an in-home daycare. It's not a center. Yeah. And that's a, another reason why the rate was a little bit lower, but she's um, one of our close friends, mother. Mm, and so, that's really nice. um, yeah, the, my kids play with our friends, kids every day yeah. <laughs> and they hang out and I know they're safe and they're treated well. Yeah. Oh, that's so fun. I, it's funny. I mean, I know this is like not the same at all, but I guess I just didn't think about how much like daycare and stuff costs. That was just never something that crossed my mind. Um, but you know, what's insanely expensive. And I didn't realize my coworker told me that he's sending his dog to like behavior training. 
Yeah. It's a thousand dollars a week. Oh yes. Yes. I was like, what? Oh, like that's a good business to be in. I mean, obviously yeah. it's probably like, a, like not the safest business to be in. Cause he was like talking about the prices and I was like, I guess it makes sense. Cause they probably have to have very high insurance and yeah. have to worry about their own safety and safety of the kids. It was just absolutely bizarre. I love dogs too, but dog people are also exhausting. So that's probably another part of it. <laughs> Yeah, that's also true. Yeah, you're paying, paying an emotional tax. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I don't work with dogs, but I know a lot of people that work with dogs, and I have heard stories about their clients where it's like, oh, they sound unpleasant, especially like groomers. Yeah. Like the things groomers go through, like to groom these dogs and their awful owners, like, oof. Yeah. I, um, I was fostering dogs uh, during the pandemic, and I, um, actually worked with a really cool shelter in Cincinnati called the Interfaith Hospitality Network. And it is a homeless shelter that created a, um, a pet shelter for pets of families experiencing homelessness. Because a lot of times when homeless, um, when people like lose their home and need to go into a shelter, they have to like give up their pet to be able to go into a shelter. So this allowed people to keep their animal like boarded somewhere. So when they were out of the shelter, they could like get their animals back. And I babies, I pets out these two dogs. I fostered them for like a week. And this woman had a full hair care routine for her dogs every single day with like chi products i don't even buy chi products for myself like that's expensive shampoo she had a special blow dryer she didn't let them walk on the ground we had to carry them around in a satchel it was literally the funniest situation and i was like oh my god <laughs> like this is i thought reptile people were crazy this is like a whole new mm-hmm. level <laughs> um okay so back on track geez <laughs> so when you uh were staying at home and like making smug bug full-time were you selling isopods or were you still doing roaches superworms other things i i got rid of the roaches and superworms when i was pregnant because the smell of the brand made me really sick mm-hmm. so um i was selling the excess isopods out of my cultures um it was just kind of like look at all the isopods i have these are the prices but it like wasn't like like a business it's like mm-hmm. I have too many of these things and they have to get out of my house. <laughs> yep. Yep. So what, um, what species were you working with at that time? And, and when did you start to get more specific with like rarer species or more expensive species? Um, I was working with like, it was really just the ones I found in my yard. And then I had friends like like mutations um, that they'd have that I was really excited about. I remember this was the... It was like right before Ben proposed to me. So we've been together for about a year. So it was about five years ago, I think. Um, we went to Tinley. Mm-hmm. And my really, really expensive ice pods I bought were the Orange Dalmatians. They had just been isolated out of the scaber. And I spent $30 on bugs. And I was so excited. Oh, wow. I had my $30. eyes on like, yeah, I had my eyes on a species, like they call them like the Titan isopod or whatever. They're called Procellio Hoffman's Zegai. Mm-hmm. I think they're native to Spain. I had to check my notes to know for sure. But I was like, I want those, but they're a hundred dollars and this is not in my budget. A hundred dollars for how many? For 10. That's like a decent price. <laughs> I was like, yeah, 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 it yeah. really was. Now, now they, they've dropped down to 60. Mm, but. Okay. okay. So like slightly rude question. So you don't have to answer if you don't want to. What is the most expensive isopod you've purchased? Can I ask? Um, it would be the isopod of species cappuccino. 
Yes. When I bought them, they were 10 for $800. That's got to be kind of so. scary. Yeah, they've, um, they've dropped in price because they breed really well, which is what happens with animals that breed well. But I'd rather that happen than them. Because a, a, a big problem with like people importing isopods is they don't take any collection data mm-hmm. or environmental data. And so it's like, here, it's really cool. Put it in dirt, it'll live. And they don't always live or they don't always thrive. Yeah. So when you like are setting up a new species of isopod, whether it's one that you like have no of, or you don't have a lot of data on, do you have like a general setup that most of your isopods are in? Yep. So what do you do? Um, like what's your soil mix and such? Um, so people, a lot of people they are like, we have to get organic because they're bugs and we have to do this. We have to, I don't, I don't do any of that. <laughs> I don't, I don't mix anything. I don't have time. They don't care. Like I, I wrote in one of my articles, I have a blog on the website, like mm-hmm. about isopod care. And I was like, oh, the first paragraph, I was like, I really want to outline this. I was like, food is not the difficult part of isopod care. Cause I literally found these things thriving under my garbage cans. Yeah. Like yeah. they will eat anything. Like there's a couple <laughs> of species you need to give them something specific, mm-hmm. but for the most part, it's not a big concern. Yeah, it's like it's like what locality isopods? Um, garbage. Yeah, yeah. garbageio is my mom would say. <laughs> garbageio can. <laughs> but uh, so I just get uh, potting soil from the store. Mm-hmm. The only thing that I make sure it doesn't have is the Miracle Grow tablet. Yeah. And that's not so much for them, but for me, because if I have my hands going through there and it's in the plant food burst, it could cause skin irritation. Mm-hmm. And if you, um, if I, in some of the cultures I sell in the substrate, like the dwarves, I sell in substrate because I'm not going to take time to count out 25 dwarves every time. Yeah. Because they're so teeny tiny. They're like a millimeter long. Mm-hmm. Um, if they put that substrate in with their animals and there is a plant, a uh, food capsule, I worry about that making the animal sick if they happen to eat it. Mm-hmm. I mean, will they look out for it as food? Probably not. But I mean, you and I both have crusties and we know they're not the most intelligent creatures. No, not at all. Like no. they'll <laughs> try and buy, eat a cricket and they'll get a mouthful of dirt and then they eat it. They don't spit it out. Yeah, at least your crusties eat crickets. Literally, I have... I, well, first of all, this is just bad. I refuse to buy crickets. I literally am disgusted by crickets. So I've tried like mealworms, dubia roja, superworms, everything with my um, geckos. They literally don't eat any of them. So now I just have like a small dubia gecko colony, not dubia gecko, dubia roach colony because I like feel bad. And I'm like, I guess I'll keep you guys. <laughs> find Maybe find something one day that eats it, but none of them do. Mm-hmm. We have um, all the geckos in partial bio. The only insects I feed them are crickets because um, the roaches all burrow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I had it happen one time in a gecko setup. I had um, roaches burrow and infest in the soil, which was really cool, but I can't gut load roaches that are in a setup. And so the geckos were getting calcium deficient. And I had a female break her jaw. Oh, man. Because they're eating these roaches that weren't gut loaded properly because they were breeding mm-hmm. in the setup. Yeah. So I had to gut the whole thing. And I was like, so I just see them crickets now that have been dusted. So what do you, um, with your feeders for the geckos, what are you gut loading with? Um, carrots, uh, spring mix and squash. Okay. But I don't really have the best gut loading routine. I haven't really researched it. It's mostly just keep them alive. 
Yeah. I just dust, I keep, I do it to keep them alive. I buy crickets every week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I, I dust them with the calcium with B3. Mm-hmm. But I, the cricket company that we buy from got loads them mm-hmm. um, before they send them out. And I just, I just keep them alive until yeah. they're all eaten. Do they smell bad for you? Yeah, I hate them. I, that's like the thing is I can't stand the smell of it. Yeah. It makes me nauseous. I hate it. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily I have I have uh four really great employees yeah. <laughs> and I um am like hey I don't want to do this mm-hmm. and, so, and they're totally cool with it they're like oh yeah it's my job <laughs> so you you have actual employees who work for Smugbug yes I have four employees that That's work for me incredible full-time. so you mentioned earlier that you have a facility is this like a facility in your home or is it like an actual it's ice a separate facility Okay, so yeah. it's uh, twelve hundred square feet, and uh, we're it just we bought the yes isopods and dry goods, so like boxes and stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, with the PetSmart contract, we expanded into the building next door, so we now have twenty four hundred square feet. Holy crap! Yeah. That, oh, so okay. I have to ask when you we're thinking, okay, I need a facility. We're going to make this big. How did that go as far as finding a place that would let you run a bug breeding facility out of there? Uh, so at first we were trying to rent because, um, I didn't, I didn't budget like a down payment because you need like 20% down payment right. for it. Um, and we were looking for months for this place to rent mm-hmm. and every single place like bugs. No, right. no, we're not going to rent to you. No, no, no. We couldn't find anywhere to rent. So I got so mad about it um, that I did get a down payment <laughs> and then I just bought a building. <laughs> oh and it's, it's an HOA, so I can't bring the reptiles. It specifically states no commercial breeding of animals and no snakes. And you can have one dog or one cat. And so it was like, I, I have on my website really in-depth tutorials about how to breed isopods and keep them alive. Right. Like, these are animals and they're like they're not animals it's not a problem don't make it a problem so I'm like don't do me okay <laughs> that's so funny HOAs are always difficult too everyone around loves me though so yeah I mean I can tell like I can see why very nice <laughs> well I, I, I meant I meant on the property like they're yeah. like oh hey Laura how's it going oh you're <sighs> the bug girl how's life Hey guys, this is Jeremy Turgeon from Brassman Reptiles and the Reptile Talk Podcast. If you're looking for another awesome source of reptile content, come on over and check Rob and I out. Talking with reptile keepers from around the block and around the world. New episodes air every week and are available on the Brassman Reptiles YouTube channel and all major podcast streaming platforms. We'll see you in the next episode. Are you tired of changing a reptile's UVB light every six months? Well, VivTech Products has the perfect bulb for you. The VivTech SureSun Series UVB and UVA bulb has a typical four-year lifespan with no UVB degradation. That means that your pet will always have the UVB and UVA they need, all while you save up to $400 over the life of the bulb. VivTech, providing a better life for reptiles in our homes and the wild through innovative husbandry. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Okay, so when was it that you were like, this is getting too big for my home, I need a facility for it? Uh, well, after PetSmart approached us, it was like in April, I think. Mm-hmm. And so we were doing the math of how many cultures like we needed. 
Mm-hmm. And we, we, I was already kind of planning on an expansion. I just wasn't planning until like next year. Right. Um, because the business had been going well with our uh, regular customers. Mm-hmm. And so I was like already kind of setting money aside to like buy a building. Mm-hmm. But then the PetSmart thing really expedited it. Yeah. And so we figured we need, we keep them in 25 liter cultures. They can hold about 5,000 isopods for 25 liter culture when they're like at peak capacity. And so we did the math of how many hundred we needed or whatever. And, and we uh, started looking, I think in May and June to try and buy. Mm-hmm. And there were isopods all over my house. Yeah. They were scattered in corners. Um, we had to like, we had to like move our storage, like, cause we had all these vehicles in storage. We had to move them into a storage unit so that we had more room to keep the isopods. Oh my and God. they were stacked underneath tables. Like I couldn't move anywhere. I, I, I think I called my realtor at one point, like having a meltdown. And I was like, you need to find me a building soon. Cause I'm so tired of tripping over boxes. He's out of my basement. That is, I'm trying to like visualize. I need to see a picture of your facility if you have them. But how did your, like, obviously your husband um, sounds like a great guy, very supportive. What do your kids think about their mom being the bug lady? Like, do they have any, are they old enough to kind of understand that? Oh, they love it. They do? They, they like, my, my daughter's, they know what isopods are. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a friend who does vinyl on shirts. Mm-hmm. Um, his company is Art of Darts. He sent me uh, these black shirts with these glittery um, isopods on it that he put on there in vinyl. Mm-hmm. And they're like, Mama, I wear isopods today. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, my son, um, he didn't get into daycare full time until actually this month. Wow. And so um, he was coming to work with me like two to four days a week, depending mm-hmm. on what daycare looks like. Mm-hmm. And if I was ever doing anything in culture, he'd be like, mama, bug, mama, bug. And I have like pictures of him sitting on the table, like looking in like, and I'd have to give him a cup of bugs. And if he dropped his bug, he'd be like, bug. <laughs> so oh my gosh. Give him another one. I'm like, here you go, buddy. Oh, bug. <laughs> he, bug, bug, thank curious, you, bug. So he, yeah he's cute so he only he only like uses like two syllable words at a time yeah. <laughs> but that's so cute they, yeah <laughs> they really like the lizards a lot yeah like one of my daughters will be like mama I want to look at wizards and snakes that's so like, you cute sure? we don't have to yeah I want to look at snakes and then so I bring both my daughters and my son down there and they still don't, there's one snake they'll touch. They'll touch the Sambo. They're terrified of all the other ones. Okay. And I bring I mean, all the other ones. I'll, uh, I'll bring out the other snakes and they'll be like, oh, after you touch. That's <laughs> so cute. Their two-year-old brother. And he'll touch it. He'll, he'll put it on his neck and totally cool with it. But Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm going to put that boy through the ringer. <laughs> so when PetSmart first approached you, first of all that's like incredible that they approached you um yeah were they like I thought it was uh I thought it was a scam at first I I, I can imagine <laughs> I was like this can't be real because they they sent a contact form through my website and they're like hi I'm the animal theater buyer for PetSmart and I'm like I just I get shady vibes from here and Ben's like well just message them back what's gonna happen you yeah. know 
Uh, yeah, they spe I specifically supply them with Priscillianized prunosis. Um, mm -hmm. And that's the most commonly requested isopod in the hobby. Because what, uh, it's, what's the common name of that one? Sorry. Powder blue. Okay, yeah. Um, and it's, it's, just, it's safe for like frogs, other amphibians, um, soft skin geckos. There's some uh, isopods that begin to like a really large population. They can actually eat the animal. Yeah. Because they basically gang up like an ant colony. And so yeah. they, um, they don't hurt any of their roommates. They're really docile. And then the other animal we provide them is springtails. Mm -hmm. And it isn't, I, I, they gave me, they said, these are the stores we want you to supply. Um, they're going to, they send me their weekly orders and I just resupply whatever they need. So then people who are purchasing um, like isopods specifically from you, while you know, the person buying from PetSmart is probably just, you know, putting them in a, a Crested Gecko tank or something similar. Do you see the people who buy from you are mostly purchasing as pets to build their own colonies or to put in bioactive setups or does it depend on the species? Most people seem to be purchasing um, for use as bioactive. Mm -hmm. I, I get emails almost every day about like what I said, how do we go to this animal in a yeah. Bioactive. And then what is the most common that you're selling besides like the PetSmart deal with the, the powder blues? Scaber. People really like Scaber. And it, I think it's because they come in so many different colors mm -hmm. and they breed so easily. Yeah. Going back a little bit, you were talking, I think we got a little, we got, we got distracted and now I have to get back onto it. I forgot. Um, we were talking about how you um, use just like a typical soil um, from the store for your mixes. Are you doing with that any sort of moss or leaf litter um, within your colonies? I um, have leaf litter that we've collected locally. Mm -hmm. We collected, I think, close to 10,000 gallons this year. So we have, we have our two buildings and then we have a storage unit full of leaf litter, <laughs> like oh, two blocks for the facility. <laughs> I, I want to see this so bad. <laughs> I'm so fascinated. <laughs> it, it's kind of funny because like we got, we had a lock, like we had to get like this special lock. It was like $10 and it's like circular for the storage unit to like keep it locked. And I haven't even put it on because I'm like, if someone's going to go in there and steal my leaves, they need me more, you need it more than I do. <laughs> you need to, you need to purposefully like abandon a storage unit. So it shows up on storage wars, you know, do not show. Yes. Yeah. That'd be like, can you imagine someone's like, I'll pay a thousand dollars and they literally just get a whole storage unit of leaves. <laughs> oh my gosh. This is like a little, well, we'll see if I'll cut this part out. This is a little dark, but have you ever heard of the, um, there's a murderer in Ohio, actually like in like an hour and a half North of where I live who like killed a couple hikers or students. And when they went to his home to like arrest him, he had bags of leaves like all over his house like taped to the walls and it was I've seen pictures of it it's like the eeriest thing it's literally just trash bags full of leaves and so that's what I'm picturing when you say you have a storage unit full of leaves <laughs> did it help with the smell or something why do you do that they literally have no idea why he did it like he was just he like at one point was an arborist or something and he just really liked trees like it was so bizarre I try not to get like too into the psychology of murderers because I don't really need to know that much. <laughs> but I just but one of uh, my employees, she listens to murder podcasts and like I, I kind of eavesdrop on it. And I, I mean, she's playing it on the speaker next to me, but like I, most of the time I'm on my computer, like doing weird things. So I can't pay attention. Mm -hmm. There's so many bizarre serial killers. 
so many i'm i am also a murder podcast listener i listen to (laughs) it's like i don't know it's a weird thing but i think it's interesting you know there's worse things i could be into yeah already into reptiles and murder podcasts that's like fairly normal right that's what 24 year old girls are doing nowadays um (laughs) when uh when i first started collecting reptiles like my dad like tried to sit me down and like i think you really need to think about how much money you're spending on all these lizards and i'm like dad i could be doing cocaine okay (laughs) and he looked at me he looked at me and he's like laura that doesn't make any sense and he like shook his head and walked away (laughs) it's like no it's i i had the same i had the same conversation with my parents like when i first got into it um you know you buy every time you buy an animal it was like a big deal you know and now not that it's not a big deal but like it's not as much of a event when a new animal comes into the collection because it's mm-hmm. happening fairly often. Um, mm-hmm. And so I used to tell my parents every time I got a new animal and now it's like, they just come over and I'm like, this is new and this is new. And they're like, oh, okay. Yeah. But they used to be beforehand. They're like, well, have you thought about this financially? Like, can you afford? And I'm like, I'm fine. <laughs> like, I'm fine. There's so many worse things I could be doing. My, my parents are like, we're finally in that stage of like bragging about, at first it was like, oh, Laura, she's eccentric. And now it's like, oh laura she found this really specific way to make money and it's so unique and so they'll come over like they came over one time i think it was when i got my canada shipment this year it was like the box is bigger than me because yeah. <laughs> it was filled with isopods and reptiles and my dad's like what's in there you know and his eyes got really big and i showed them and then they're like can i ask how much that lizard was and i was like yeah it was this much and they're like oh and i'm like don't worry He's like, you're going to make it back, right? I'm like, yeah, of course they're going to make it back. I mean, it's going to take three years, but yeah. yeah. I, I, um, when I get like animals shipped to me, I do the FedEx hub that's near work. And so I like will jump out for 30 minutes to go pick up something from FedEx, right? I usually will bring a big box of whatever I have that day, like back to work. And usually it's just a snake or a gecko or whatever, nothing like too big. Well, for Tinley this year, uh, Erica Paris from Arboreals Anonymous shipped all of her geckos that she was going to be selling at Tinley to me to drive to Tinley because she like didn't have someone in Chicago to like pick up for her. So I was Mm -hmm. like, yeah, of course I'll do that. And like, she's like, okay, I'm sending you 27 geckos. And like, I don't know why in my head, I did not think of how large this box was going to be. And then it wasn't <laughs> one I could just kind of like casually sneak into the office. And like, if you haven't seen Erica's stuff, it's amazing. It's all chihuahuas and leeches. Oh. My, coworkers, my coworkers like came over to my desk and I asked Erica, I was like, can I show them a couple geckos? Cause you know, I like to show people and talk about it, obviously. Oh yeah. Um, But my coworker was like asking me, he's like, how much do these cost? And I was like, mm, this. And he's like, what the fuck? And I was like, yeah. Uh, yeah. And he's like, we should get into gecko breeding. And I was like, no, you don't understand the upfront cost of like what actually goes into it to possibly yeah. make animals that could sell for that much money. Yeah. You know, and it's totally worth it when you see the animals, like they're gorgeous, but it was very funny. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's just, it's hilarious. Something that's so normal to us nowadays to like get a shipment of geckos or something or snakes or whatever. And people are like, those just go through the mail. And I'm like, well, technically FedEx, you know, whatever, (laughs) but it's so weird. Um, so when your parents were like asking you questions about like 
you getting into it and stuff. And like, there's obviously that hesitance a little bit. Did you ever have that with your husband where he did like kind of have a, are you sure? This um, is he, he loves me so much. He can't say no to me. Um, but half our collection in the first like two years, um, I got because I saw it at an expo and I cried mm-hmm. just because I have too many feelings, not because someone said no. And I think there's even a few he just bought for me. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, obviously you need this. But then when we started getting like more animals, um, like when we were really investing in like the gargoyle geckos, yeah. and I had like a budget for it, but I wanted him to know I wasn't recklessly spending. Mm-hmm. And so I actually like wrote out a business plan and mm-hmm. I like was like, this is how these much go for, and these are how these much go for, and this is how many they produce a year. And I think I did that like three or four times. Mm-hmm. And now we're just at the point where I'll like, I'll be like, Hey, um, what do you think about buying this animal? And most of the time it's not like, it's not so much like asking permission, yeah. but it's like, if it's like this much, like, is it in the budget? And, um, and he, he does the same too, when he's like getting things that are more expensive and mm-hmm. he, he the last few times he's looked at me and he's like, I don't even know what you're asking me. <laughs> trust you just get it if you think you need it (laughs) that's so fun um so how often are you actually bringing like new isopods into your collection now or are you mainly just producing what you have I I typically do an export in or an import in the spring like I I buy in the spring and then in the fall and is that usually new species you're bringing in or additional to like supplement your existing colonies I I supplement as needed Mm-hmm. Um, so like I take an inventory at the beginning of every month and we mark cultures that aren't doing pretty well. And then I'll go through, um, I forget this word. I want to say cohorts, but that's not correct. <laughs> but like other isopod breeders, I, uh, go through their list. And if, um, they have some of this culture I'm looking for, I'm going to be like, how many can you do? You know? And it's, it's kind of funny. Cause like, they're used to selling like 10 at a time. They're like, oh, well, you know, we have a couple cultures. And I'm like, can you do 200? <laughs> they're like, is 50 okay? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'll take all 50. It's fine. <laughs> but if, and, and it happens sometimes, like either um, too many have been pulled when mm-hmm. we've been selling them to customers or um, there hasn't been enough ventilation because it was overpacked and it kind of died off and we had to redo mm-hmm. the setup. But every so often we do have to um, add like either new genes or new cultures to help revitalize the culture. Mm-hmm. But the, and we do that um, throughout the year. I'll just be like checking out the list and like replenishing as needed. Um, but spring and fall are when I really focus on bringing in new species and mutations. Mm-hmm. So two questions. My first one is you mentioned ventilation. Um, I know that's something that I've had conversations with people about when it comes to isopods and like kind of varies. Do you do cross ventilation like on the sides of the tubs or are you doing more like on the top? I don't do it on the top because that increases the contamination factor. Okay. So what do you mean by that? Um, so most people, when they do isopod tubs and I don't even do this anymore because it's just pain in the butt, they use a, um, soldering iron or soldering iron, however you Mm -hmm. say it. And they poke all those little holes. Mm-hmm. Um, baby isopods are a millimeter in length or less. Mm-hmm. Um, dwarf isopods are even smaller. And if you snack your tubs, um, they'll crawl out from where, wherever you put the holes. They'll fall down and they'll crawl back through the holes into the next culture. 
Mm. And then you have cross-contamination between species or colors. And can most, can, can species interbreed pretty regularly? No. No, but the color scan, the morph scan. Yes. It's, um, most isopod mutations are recessive. Okay. Um, so you need two copies, like, so like with albinism is like Mm -hmm. the most famous of, um, mutations you an animal with albinism to express that trait albinism is they don't um, produce melanin at all they don't produce any dark pigment and so the animal is typically all white with like clear or really light colored eyes mm-hmm. you need one copy of each gene if the if one parent is al- albino and the other parent is normal um, and all the offspring are normal the offspring are what they call heterozygous mm-hmm. um, an albino individual is homozygous for the gene um, which means same heterozygous means different so they have an albino gene and a normal type gene mm-hmm. um, so if you would take say two different recess- recessive expressions so you've got an albino one and then you have an orange one and you put them together to cross almost all the offspring will be wild type so they'll just be gray but they will be heterozygous for both traits um, i actually have a blog that goes really in depth and it even has like visual aids that I spent like yeah. two hours making on my computer. <laughs> I, this is just so interesting because like, you know, I, I work with ball pythons, so I know like hens and, and all that stuff, but I never considered it within isopods, yeah. but I, there's so much more science to it than I expected. So have you in your colonies over the years, like seeing morphs pop up unique to to your collection and yeah and like i have released those. a couple mutations onto the market um and are, sorry, really, fast, one. really quick are they morphs or mutations or are those um like so a morph is well this this is how i i don't know if this is like recognized as a hobby a morph is a proven trait mm-hmm. so like the peach nisodom is a proven morph there right all peach it's proven you can read it um, a mutation is something that has spontaneously occurred in the colony that has not been proven out yet okay cool cool so you've released mutations i i released proven morph oh okay and what um, were those? mutations uh the most well-known one that is distributed is the papaya cubaris really <laughs> i think you've seen them the little pink ones yeah those are, those are cubaris murina uh-huh. And they were bright pink, so I named them papaya. And it drives me absolutely bonkers because they'll be like, these are Cubana species, papaya from Thailand. And I'm like, no, they're from North Dakota and their ancestors are from Florida. <laughs> I made them. That is <laughs> so Urena. cool. When they first got released, um, I sent them to a friend of mine in Florida and he posted them on his Instagram, Cubaris papaya and they're like or, these are papaya isopods and someone commented they're like, what species are these and I responded and I was like cubaris and urina and he's like are you sure and I was like I'm sure I've been squinting at them in my basement for two years yeah it's like I'm pretty sure I made them so did you <laughs> okay so you go in your basement you open up that tub and you're like that's that's pink did you pull just the ones that were pink out or were you just letting the whole colony kind of work through itself I I don't like to isolate them immediately. Um, if there's only like one or two, I leave them mm-hmm. because I want the initial culture to get as varied genes as possible. Yeah. And so if we see it, like we kind of mark the top, like we'll put a note on it 
say um, possible mutation, write a description, um, please do not pull. And we just like leave it in the population. So there have been people who have gotten Q-virus from Marina, Marina for me, and then they've isolated their own papaya cultures mm-hmm. because they have received heterozygous. Because I, I leave them in there until there's like a, a pretty decent population and then I start pulling them yeah. because I want them to be genetically varied. And then after I have enough, like 20 to 50, I start isolating um, the culture. Hmm. Okay. And then um, after that, I continue to pull the visuals so that I'm only um, selling off the wild types rather than the mutations to people. That's really cool. So uh, you said you've done the papaya. Have there been other morphs that you've established in the hobby? Um, they, there are two or not as morphs I'm actually releasing this year. One of them I called um, lemon sorbet mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's an all yellow or not as it's really cute. I think it's a true albino. It's got clear eyes. Cool. And then the other one, um, someone actually isolated it before me, so I took his name. Um, but mine is from different stock than his. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's called Witch's Brew. It's the Dalmatian mutation over Nottis. Cool. And then there are two dwarf species I've isolated orange mutations of. One of them is Agabiformius lentis. Mm-hmm. And I call <laughs> Do you know what a persimmon is? Yes. It's like... Yeah, they're super cute. Just these little oval-shaped fruits. Yeah. So I, I called it persimmon because they're just these derpy little round things. That's so cute. All right, you have to give me a second because my um, I have a blind elderly cat who's lost and he's screaming. So I'm going to mute myself and go find him. Okay. Um, but sorry about that. Well, we, uh, we'll get back on it. So we, we took a short break so I could take care of my cat. But... While I was waiting for you to come back, I did Google the papaya isopod, and I want to let you know on isopodapet.com, it does say that they originated in North Dakota. Yeah, yeah, he's a good friend of mine. Hilarious, (laughs) (laughs) so funny. (laughs) Oh, that's that's really really awesome. So, um, oh gosh, okay. So we we've talked a lot about like animals you have and um what you're working on, but are there any isopod species that are newly discovered or not in the hobby yet that you're really trying to uh, get for yourself or get established um there's nothing i'm specifically gunning for Mm -hmm. um i'm when i get new species i do it really cautiously Mm um i the the species that are like most trending that people are really interested in are the ones that are being harvested out of Thailand. Mm-hmm. But I don't like to get those. I usually don't get them until a year after they've been discovered. And why is that? Um, because people, there, there have been a lot of species that have been imported and they'll be like, these breed great, these breed great. And they'll import them, they'll sell them as soon as they get them off the plane. Mm-hmm. And at first, like the first few months, people are always really excited because these are wild caught animals that are breeding in captivity. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times females will either birth on time or prematurely due to stress. Mm-hmm. And then and then usually a month or two later, they'll post, oh, my adults are dead, but I have a brood. And then you never hear them post it again. Mm-hmm. And so I don't, there are animals that I don't think can be kept in captivity or they have such specific conditions mm-hmm. 
that we don't know we don't know from like the collection data that I just don't risk it yeah um and my the people I know in Europe that have collected I, I like trust them yeah like they'll give you the best husbandry advice they can um but and so it's just it's so much like they'll message me and be like look what I found when I was like hiking in the mountains and mm-hmm. I'll be like oh that's really interesting like you can send it to me and I just kind of um take it from there but when it comes to the Southeast Asian invertebrates, mm-hmm. I won't, I won't even touch them. <laughs> so like, uh, I usually let other people take the risk and import them. And then once I see them, like, they'll post photos of like multiple generations, like obviously a full-sized adult. Most of them that are imported are like full-sized adults because that's what people can catch. Mm-hmm. And then um, a sub-adult and then newborn babies. I'm like, okay, like their culture is thriving. They know what they're doing. Um, this is a trustworthy person to buy from. And then I contact and I start getting those cultures. Mm-hmm. So when you're like importing or bringing in new species, okay, pardon me if this is dumb, but do you have to worry about like any pests that come with them or parasites or anything? There are only, there's only one type of parasite. I, I mean, I spent a really long time researching in scientific papers, um, trying to find incidences of isopod pests. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a fly native to the Mediterranean that lays its eggs in isopods that the larva, larva heart hatches and then pupates and then comes out as a fly. And then there's another virus called iridovirus that turns the isopod this brilliant blue. Mm-hmm. And they actually live a couple months and then they die. Most isopods live two to three years. And after contracting the iridovirus, they only live a few months. And that is very contagious mm-hmm. if there's like a scratches or injury on them, or I think it might be sexually transmitted between them too. Hmm. Um, they can contract it between each other and then die. But those are the only, and I think there's one, there's some sort of a parasite in Mexico that I read about, but I've never seen it in captive bred cultures. I think it specifically affects the subaquatic isopods. Mm-hmm. not the terrestrial isopods so i'm looking at this iridovirus it they're beautiful <laughs> they like, are that is, they are gorgeous that is really stunning of an animal but an absolute shame that that's like a death sentence have you heard of the blue crayfish yes yeah the blue crayfish i, w- I was told i haven't researched it specifically on my own the blue crayfish i was told have um a gene that um, allows them to survive a iridovirus infection. Mm-hmm. And that's why they maintain the blue coloring and it's passed on between offspring. Oh, wow. That's super fascinating. Because um, isopods, they aren't insects, they're crustaceans. Right. And so iridovirus affects other species of crustaceans as well. So um, you mentioned briefly like uh, that these are terrestrial species we're working with. Are there people who are working with aquatic species of isopods in captivity? They keep popping up. Like uh, the Ligia giganteus is one I know of. Um, People collect them. I see them collecting them and posting about them all the time, especially Mm -hmm. on the East Coast. Um, But I haven't seen people getting them to thrive. Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, there's a difference between thriving and surviving. So thriving, there'll be multiple generations of animals you know 
it's like the same as bark clips you do and you see like literally thousands of ice of pods. Um, they'll be like, well, they're doing great. They're doing great. But there'll be like five legia in the tank mm-hmm. and they, they aren't dying, but they're not thriving. Right. So I don't, people have been able to keep them alive in captivity and like fish tanks and aquariums, but I haven't really seen evidence of breeding. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another one that looks like a little tank that's native to California beaches. Yeah. I can't remember the name of it, but it's um, an amphibious species. And they basically live in the really soggy, wet part of sand on California beaches. And they're so cute. And people keep saying they're doing great. They're doing great. But they need this specific salinity. Mm -hmm. um, They need this specific kind of salinity water to survive. Um, I have heard of people getting them to breed. But it's so specific and difficult and I am so good at killing goldfish that I haven't even, <laughs> I haven't even tried yeah. <laughs> know your weaknesses and uh animals live in water are my weakness <laughs> that's funny so I know um when I think of subaquatic isopods the one I think of is the the parasitic one that attaches to the tongue of the fish yeah so do you know that that species that is I don't know the name off the top of my head Okay, that's fine. Um, I know there's a bunch in like the Michigan lakes, the Great Lakes. Right. And they're finding them on tailfin too. So that's what I was curious. Are there other species of isopods that are parasitic like that? Or is that a unique thing? I haven't heard of anything terrestrial, but there are a number of species that are aquatic and marine that are parasites. Interesting. And those, and they are both like isopoda, like they're related, yep. the terrestrial yep. and aquatic. Oh, that is so fascinating. So I had a couple more questions. Um, I've been writing things down as we talked just because I'm so fascinated by it. Um, oh, uh, one more while we're on the topic of other uh, marine isopods. Yeah. There are deep sea marine isopods being kept alive in zoos. Really? They aren't breeding, but there was one, there's one in Chicago. There's one in the Chicago Aquarium, a giant deep sea isopod. And there's actually one in Japan in one of their aquariums. He refused to eat for seven years until he eventually starved himself to death. But it was so funny when I was reading the article because they kept harassing him and throwing food at his face. And he mm-hmm. pretended to take the food to appease it them. And then when they left the tank, he'd throw it aside. <laughs> this is so funny. Oh my, these are massive. Oh, I'm just Googling it now. The, the tricky part with them is they like really cold water. And I think they need a pretty substantial water pressure in order to live. Because they're, they're deep sea marine isopods. I'm looking at a video of like 10 deep sea isopods eating an alligator on the floor. Yeah, that was really cool. They were, they were studying the detrivores on uh, the bottom of ocean floors. Oh and my gosh. They were most of the ones that. There's another video of they haven't identified the specific species, but they're trying to release juvenile hammerhead sharks. And they wouldn't leave their tank. And then all of a sudden, a giant isopod shot in there and latched onto the head of one of the juvenile sharks and killed it in its tank. And the other one swam away. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Isopods are metal. Um, yeah. So I guess that was one of the things I was going to ask you about is um, general feeding for isopods. So I know that when I think about it, I mainly feed like carrots, apples, like things kind of throw in a dubia roach colony. Um, Mm -hmm. But then I also supplement with uh, sometimes eggshells or cuddle bone, those kinds of things. Um, What does your general diet look like for the isopods? And are you offering um, like protein items at all? 
Yes. Um, well, like the main thing about Isopod diet, a lot of people see to this is they almost treat leaves like they're a decoration. Mm-hmm. But leaves are like the most important. Like I like half an inch to an inch of leaf litter covering the entire setup. Oh, wow. I don't like any spare bits. Um, people like to put in a lot of moss. Um, moss can work as a source of nutrition in a pinch, but it really shouldn't be their main source of nutrition. Yeah. And so I only advise like five to 10% of moss if you're worried about the culture drying out. But otherwise, like the main ingredient should always be hardwood leaves. Um, so hardwood as in like driftwood? Um, so there are, there are hardwood and there are softwood trees. Softwood trees are like your pines, um, trees with needles. Mm-hmm. Um, hardwood are fruit trees, elm trees, maple, cottonwood, um, elm, linden, mm-hmm. those sorts of things. Okay. Like the ones that like shed once a year in the fall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then, um, are you, what else are you offering besides the leaf litter and, and like the hardwood? Are you giving I, anything uh, else? I buy fish food in bulk. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and we give them like, depending on how big the culture is, like between one and eight ounces of fish food per feeding. And how so, like, often really, are you feeding? Uh, we, we aim for weekly. Okay. So sometimes like things get nanners, we get a bunch of orders and we only get to them bi-weekly or sorry, um, bi-monthly. Mm-hmm. Um, but we try to feed them and go through everybody weekly just for like monitoring purposes. So with the people who work in your facility and like obviously yourself, what does that entail? Is, are you just checking colonies? Or are you feeding every day? Like, like what are you doing? Are just packaging orders? The, yeah, the main thing is preparing the orders and packaging them. Uh, we have specific days like Thursdays, uh, we ensure that all of the springtails are checked on because we have 50 master springtail cultures. Mm-hmm. And so we go through, we make sure they're still moist. Um, we add yeast. We do like the basic monitoring to make sure I'm that sorry, they're all doing well. sorry, you add yeast? Yeah, uh, springtails feed, thrive on mold and yeast growth. And so I buy brewer's yeast in bulk and we give them each a little pinch. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we, we even do it for the ones that we send out like pet front stores and um, customers just because it, it, it encourages really good growth and really good breeding and healthy mm-hmm. animals. Mm-hmm. And so like if we have, we're sending out say 3,000 cups to Petsmart that week, every single one we go through, <laughs> we make sure have use because we try to prepare them two weeks ahead of time. Yeah. So when you are shipping out animals, um, you mentioned that like count out 25 of like certain species, but with dwarfs, you're just going to kind of put a scoop in or something and you use the soil for the other ones that are just specific species. Are you not sending them with any soil? Are they just coming in like a bare bottom cup? No. Well, I don't like to send soil because it can get compacted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like, I, the, the dwarves I pack in substrate just because they do the best that way. Right. The other species that are larger, we pack in just the moss because okay. the moss, it does function as a food source, a short-term food source for them to eat. Um, I've done tests and I've had isopods living in just moss for over a month mm-hmm. um, without, like they've been shedding, they've been fine as long as it stays moist, it holds moisture. Um, we don't, we, ca- we pack it enough that they don't shake around, um, but not so much that it's tight because if it's tight, they can't move and they die. Right. And then um, the other species, like the giant species, the Spanish giants, we don't even pack that one all the way. 
because they're so large and they have they, they need most people kill the Spanish giants because they don't have enough air ventilation. Mm-hmm. Um, when they're first being distributed, people are saying they like to be dry. Um, they don't like to be dry. They're used to living in caves and cliff sides with lots of ventilation. Mm-hmm. And so they need air passing through in space to move in order for them to successfully molt and live. Mm-hmm. So when you say like the giant species, how large are these, are the, like the bigger isopods in the hobby right now? Um, 20 to 30 millimeters. That's like a decent so it's size. It's like an inch and a half to two inches. Hmm. And then the giant isopods down deep are like much bigger, right? Like they're, like, f- they're like two to four feet long. Yeah. <laughs> the deep oh, yeah. isopods. <laughs> one day, one day you're going to pop out one of those and be like, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> So then just a couple more of the questions I had, um, and then we'll start to wrap up. So you mentioned, um, especially with these giant, uh, Spanish giant isopods, um, that they do need ventilation. And one thing we haven't touched on is that isopods have gills, right? They have segments. Can you explain that? Um, they are closely related to shrimp and crabs. Mm -hmm. So like how a shrimp has like multiple segments. Mm -hmm. Like you'll, you know how like the tail, they'll be mm-hmm. like, and they, they are kind of like scales, I guess. I, um, there's sorry, I said names for them. I meant gills, not scales. Gills, yes, they okay, have yeah, gills. Okay, <laughs> they uh, the terrestrial ones, they have they call them a modified gill for terrestrial use, and they are little white sacks on the underside of them by their tail, mm-hmm. and that's how they breathe. breed. And um, a lot of people have taken videos of isopods and it looks like they're twerking. Yeah. Because they're like lifting their tail. They're actually drinking water and wetting their gills. Oh, so go ahead. Sorry. I I was going to say a lot of people, um, they accidentally kill their culture because it dries out completely because they don't realize they need constant ambient moisture. Mm -hmm. Like in the dish of water, they need the ambient moisture to keep their gills moist. Okay, so that was gonna be my question. Was um two things with that? It's like, is is the humidity in the air more important, or is actual moisture in the soil? And then, should you offer like a water dish or something just to keep it more humid? I don't recommend water dishes because they can drown. Mm -hmm. Um, but the soil should always have a moist area. Mm -hmm. Some need more moisture than others. Um, if the culture is too humid, that can make it very difficult for them to shed successfully. Most isopod dusts are like from inappropriate shedding because either being too wet or too dry. Hmm. But if the soil is like, look, what I always say is like, if it feels moist, but you squeeze it and water doesn't drip out, that's perfect. If you that squeeze is- it and water is dripping, that is way too wet. If you can't really feel any moisture, that's getting too dry. Hmm. There that's are two species really in our collection that need very little moisture um the Priscilla magnificus and the Priscilla wagneri and those are the only ones that i recommend using like a moss corner and what we do is we have a moss corner that is like an inch or two inches square mm-hmm. and we just soak the heck out of that moss corner because yeah. then they can go they can wet their gills and they can go out and it doesn't risk getting the um entire culture wet uh, otherwise all of our cultures we keep uh 50 moist 
So we miss down um, half of the culture really heavily. There's a couple that we mark missed throughout. And those would be like the prunosis and the dwarf species do really well with an entirely moist culture. Okay. And then besides like uh, humidity and, and moisture, like we were discussing, do you find that there is a temperature that you keep your facility at that is best for just general population growth across the species? 75 Fahrenheit. Really? For all species and they seem to do well there? Yeah. Very the cool. ones from like Southeast Asia, they can do best at 80 to 85 Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. Um, but that would be miserable to work in. So I don't yeah, do it. <laughs> um, a lot of people, they'll put the, like the Q-bar species on seed mass. Um, I'm really hesitant to do that because of it being a potential virus with the amount of Q-bar species tubs we have. Yeah. And so what we do is we put them on the top shelf. So like the warmest part of the facility is where we put them. So they're just warmer than everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and then isopods like I've kept them down to 60 Fahrenheit and they still breed they just breed a lot more slowly they can survive um in the 50s or even 40s as long as they don't freeze one time someone was asking me for advice on photographing isopods they're like they just can't sit still and I'm like put them in the fridge and they're like what I said put them in the fridge they'll stop moving and they're like I don't want to kill them and I was like you're not going to kill them put them in the fridge for five minutes or even half an hour if you're like me with a goldfish brain you can't remember you put them in the fridge yeah take them back and then while they're warming up they'll be still for you and they won't be dead that is so smart that's okay so when I used to volunteer at um the Cincinnati Zoo and I did meal preparation for a lot of the animals I worked with and I worked with a lot of insectivores like uh anteaters and armadillos and such and so I would be doing the meal prep and you know, in a fridge, when you open it and it's got like those two chilling containers at the bottom for like fruits and veggies, yeah. like crispers, those were full of bugs, torpid bugs. So one was entirely full of crickets and one was full of mealworms. And it was the best because you could just like scoop in and you have all of these alive yet like semi inanimate bugs. Mm-hmm. And, and I would always do those and you could tell which um, meals I did first because those were the ones that were moving because <laughs> they would slowly but surely like start to come back and like yeah be moving all over the place <laughs> well we are reaching the end of our time I just had um I was gonna ask you um so when I was asking people for recommendations for questions or things you know that they wanted to know when talking about isopods um a couple people wanted to get suggestions on certain types of isopods that go best in different climates. So I had three different climates that we keep our reptiles in that I was hoping maybe you could like recommend a species for if they want to do bioactive. Mm -hmm. Um, So the first one is like, obviously um, for more of a tropical climate or for like gecko species and maybe some tropical snakes and such, if they want to do bioactive, what would you suggest for the cleanup crew for those? Uh, The prunosis and then a dwarf species like the dwarf whites are what people go with. And do you cross, um, like, can you do two species in one setup? Uh, you can. Um, the only thing is with dwarf whites, they, if they don't have someone, if they don't have a species predating on them, they can reach like a really high population. So the prunosis uh, may die out or they may just do fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but the good news is, is if they reach that level of population, the dwarf whites are processing so much waste that you don't even have to worry about not having a macro species to process okay. the animal waste. And when you're doing um, a tropical setup, are you adding any springtails? Uh, 
I don't because they just appear. Yeah. <laughs> if uh, they're in an area or they don't have uh, setups with pre-existing springtails, because we have springtails and everything. They're in all the espas, they're in all the roachmans, they're in all the, they just mm-hmm. find their way into a bin. Um, I do recommend getting um, springtails, especially like in the really warm states like Arizona and Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't have a lot of native springtails because it's, or the springtails don't introduce themselves because it's so dry. I do recommend getting a culture of them. Okay. Awesome. Um, so then the next one would be more of a moderate environment. Um, I think specifically like, uh, North American rat snakes or corn snakes and such, uh, what would you recommend isopods for that? Um, a lot of people have the best success with like Porcelio labus because they're a larger species. Um, they do really well in semi-dry conditions and they are very large and they breed well. I know they're, they're really popular with bearded dragons because the bearded mm-hmm. dragons lose their minds like foraging for them. Um, Porcelio scaber and Porcelio dilatatus would also do really well. Um, an option, people that dwarves still can do well. They won't breed as quickly. Mm-hmm. And if you have a macro species like the dilatatus or the labus, they will predate on and eat the dwarf species. Mm-hmm. So I usually recommend just sticking to a macro species in the springtails. Okay. And then finally, if you have like a pretty Aaron setup, say a bearded dragon or even like a Euromastix, are there certain ice pods that could do well in there? If it is a completely dry setup, like maybe a water dish, mm-hmm. I don't recommend using isopods in setups like that. Mm-hmm. The only isopods that could like maybe survive in conditions that dry would be the Magnificus and they'll, they will be crushed or eaten and they do not, they do not eat animal waste very well. They don't process it very well and they keep a really small population relative to space because the mm-hmm. males are so territorial they kill other males and offspring hmm. um so what most people do for arid setups is they actually use beetles as cleaners oh really hmm. well that's super fascinating um laura that is all my questions for you the last thing i always like to ask my guests is uh if a younger girl was telling you she was interested in getting into the hobby or maybe interested in getting into isopods what kind of advice would you give her um uh, the best thing to do is just learn as much as you can. Mm-hmm. Like there's no, there's nothing wrong with asking questions and there's nothing wrong with trying to learn. And it that's the best um, you can do for yourself is just flirting and researching because there's just so many materials, not even just like what breeders and other hobbyists are putting out. But if you go on to like Google Scholar and you type in species names, there's so many articles on just behavior and breeding behavior and litter size and stuff like that. I, had no idea before I started like writing specific articles on species, how much people have actually put into researching these animals. Mm-hmm. Well, that's awesome. Um, that's great advice. And I will definitely be doing more research because I was going to say you give me the bug, which is a bad pun. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, truly, this was such an interesting conversation and totally my mind is blown with some of the things you've told me that I just haven't even thought about when it comes to isopods. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, if people want to reach out and learn more about you or, you know, maybe buy some isopods from you, where can they find you? Uh, they can submit a contact form on the website or the email is info at smug bug.com. And then there's all the social media um, profiles like Facebook and Instagram that people contact me through. Awesome. And I will have all of that listed in the comments. Um, and once again, I am your host, Dominique DeFalco. You can find me at DeFalco Reptiles on Facebook and Instagram. 
And then you're always welcome to follow the podcast at Modern Reducer Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and support us on Patreon if you feel so inclined. It does help me out a lot. So Laura, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. Um, I feel very enlightened when it comes to isopods um, and it really has been an awesome way to start my Sunday. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening and we'll talk at you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening. 